You're listening to the Rescuer MBS podcast with hosts Laura McGladry and Marcel Rodriguez. For show notes and reference materials, visit www.anchor.fm front slash Rescuer MBS. Rescuer MBS, know your limits, improve your performance. If you've ever taken a wilderness medicine course with the National Outdoor Leadership School, you've likely heard of Todd Schimmelfenig, as he quite literally wrote the book on wilderness medicine. Laura caught up with Todd at a recent wilderness risk management conference, and they spoke about his 40-plus year career in EMS and wilderness medicine, the changing approaches to dealing with stress injuries over that time, and the current inclusion of psychological first aid into all Knowles wilderness medicine courses. So I'm here with Todd Schimmelfenig. Todd, would you just tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm the curriculum director for Knowles Wilderness Medicine. So I oversee the curriculum, research, write, I teach. I've been doing that in wilderness medicine since the late 1970s. And formally for Knowles Wilderness Medicine since 2002. I was an EMS provider for 40 years and recently stopped running ambulance, so I'm still quite active with our search and rescue unit. Great. Where are you located? I'm in Lander, Wyoming. I've been there for 40 years. So you started teaching wilderness medicine, when did you say? In 1978, I remember teaching the first wilderness medicine, sort of quasi-advanced first aid class that we were doing back then. And that was for Knowles? That was for Knowles Field Instructors. I taught for Knowles Field Instructors uh, and did training for them all all up until the uh, the turn of the century <laughs> when uh, Knowles uh, purchased uh, Wilderness Medicine Institute. And then we started. I started getting engaged with the public courses. Got it. Will you paint us a little bit of a picture of what a wilderness medicine class would have looked like in 1980, let's say? What were you teaching? What things were you? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I think we're, we're teaching a lot of what we, we teach today. Uh, we were, uh, I don't know, the splints would look a little different because the equipment looked a little different. The... Uh, we were playing around, I remember back then, with improvised traction splints. And you'll see a drawing in some textbooks of a mountain boot with a cravat laced through the instep. So you could put the boot back on and then pull traction off that instep. And that's an innovation from an old field instructor. We Back then in wilderness medicine, there was a lot of stuff that was sort of cavalier. People were being taught to put how to decompress chest and reduce all sorts of dislocations. And I don't remember doing that, much uh-huh. of that. Or teaching it. Or teaching it. Uh, well, definitely not doing it because we didn't do it. I wouldn't teach it. Right. And uh, being a little more conservative in my approach. Yeah. But uh, What were the sort of typical injury types that you remember being prominent back in those days that you were trying to mitigate the injury? Well, that was actually when we first started recording data at Knowles, uh-huh. incident data, and really trying to keep track of it. And that's where we figured out that we really needed to prep people for, you're going to fall over and break your wrist, you're going to break your ankle, you're going to sprain your ankle, you're going to get ten- Achilles tendonitis back then because of the big heavy boots we used to wear. And also that a lot of people just got sick. Yes. And it was a little while before we kind of figured out it was a hygiene-related, probably a hygiene-related issue. 
Yeah. You know, back then you didn't disinfect water on a field course. Mm -hmm. So we were, I think, starting to recognize the injury profile a little bit and trying to ground the curriculum in what was really relevant for the field instructors. We were starting to think a lot about developing decision protocols for them, realizing that, you know, there are they're, they're outdoor experts. They're not medical experts. And we train them, but they have really very little patient care experience. So we, that's when we first started thinking about, can we try to make decision-making guidelines? Yes. And the patient assessment system. And the patient assessment system. Because she had to teach system. them how to do patient assessment. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you got your start in EMS when? I started... Riding, volunteering on an ambulance service in January 1974. I became an EMT in May 1975. How long had the EMT curriculum been around? Only a couple of years. So that was the Wild West back then, too, probably in some ways? Uh, What things were you learning in 1974? I mean, I actually still have a copy of the textbook, and it's amazingly thin. Yes. The original orange textbook back then. A lot of the same things, but remember, we were like the short backboards. The the, the old version of what's the KED was this wooden thing, wooden contraption, and we had all sorts of crazy strapping methods to use that. Interestingly, when I first started, the regs were such that – I learned how to do CPR in the back of an ambulance. Uh We had people on the service who didn't know how to do CPR, and you learned it on the fly. fly. Mm -hmm. We also didn't backboard patients back then. Mm -hmm. They were immobilized, and a scoop stretcher was kind of the hot thing. And we would only immobilize patients who were symptomatic on the scene. For nerve damage, spot core, spinal cord damage, or spine pain, and then somehow, and pretty early on, that flipped. Yeah, and we know that journey through the decades. Sure, and now we're sort of full circle. And now, and now we're trying to get out of it. <laughs> get back there. Yeah, actually. get back to something reasonable. So you you really started into EMS really after very soon after EMS was born. Honestly, 1973 EMS Act and the development of these occupations where you're all of a sudden condensing exposure, right? So before that, you might have had a, a doctor or an orderly who had, or a nurse who had multiple jobs, maybe treating someone's sickness, child, helping with childbirth and helping with an accident. And all of a sudden was born this, these professions, paramedicine, emergency medicine, dispatch, even non-rescue, where all of a sudden it was potentially go get one more and one more and one more injured person at a time. And uh, which is interesting, of course, to me, when we think now about the impact of condensed exposure, we actually haven't, you are the first generation to start in this process and go all the way through to retirement. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It is. Yeah. So in a way, we actually don't know, have never been able to study in a civilian context, the impact of condensed exposure. We've only ever seen it in, um, in combat, but really limited to deployments. So, of course, that has a lot of curiosity for me, treating folks now into retirement. Um, this, these might, yours might actually be the first generation that we have seen the impact of stress accumulation all the way through. 
the guinea pigs. Well, the guinea pigs. So I might have to ask you what it feels like. No, don't tell me. So, so you also entered Mountain Rescue about the same time. A little bit later. I, I, I mean, I started uh, EMS at a college in Vermont. Mm-hmm. We were 18 and 19 years old. Mm-hmm. I was 20. I was a crew chief on an ambulance. Mm-hmm. We were pretty young. We didn't do a lot of Mountain Rescue. That has, I started doing that when I moved to Lander in the late 1970s full-time. Okay. So. How many years now in Mountain Rescue then? Uh, I guess you could say it had to be 78 or 79. Okay, I, yeah, yeah. Some of the first responses in, in Wyoming. So back in those days, um, maybe in the context of, of EMS or even Mountain Rescue, let's go back to EMS and that's all the skills that you were learning, backboarding, et cetera. What did you know? What happened if someone had uh, overwhelming exposure? They saw something terrible, saw a friend killed, maybe you were a medic responding or a, an EMT responding on scene to someone you know, or a multi-casualty incident. What was the what was the practice back then? There wasn't. Yeah. Uh, we. Uh, what did people do? Uh, I mean, some some people would. You know, you talk to your friends, you talk a little bit to the, some of the people who were on that incident with you, but nobody knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it was, uh, the attitude was, well, this comes with the territory. Right. So you have to learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I know that there was a lot of, uh, uh, well, people were young men anyway, but there was a lot of people partied hard. Right, right. That was. I was going to ask, how did people deal with it? Yeah. What do you think was the? Yeah. How did people? Did they blow I, off steam? Did they? I think if we were trying to blow off steam, a lot of it was around uh, partying. Yeah. And a little, little bit youthful exuberance, and a little bit. I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. I don't know who to talk to. Yeah. I, I remember this one time. So this is a college service, and we serve the community. Mm-hmm. And we have to be there 24-7, 365. So during vacations, people stayed at the school. And I did my stint uh, one Christmas break. And we were up there on call for, I, I don't know, you know, I can't remember this. I hope I'm not exaggerating. But I think it was six straight days, 24-7. And we were getting hammered. Mm. And there was nobody else in campus. It was dark and it was cold. It's January in Vermont. I remember it was bad enough that the ER nurses started making a joke about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That you kept bringing them in. Yeah. Yeah. But when it was all over, there was this fellow, it's this Catholic college, and there's this priest. I think he was the head of the order, and he lived across the street. And we, when we got off duty, he was aware of what was kind of going on. And he invited us over for a dinner. Uh-huh. And we just all sat around, and we had this really nice dinner. And he chatted with us for a while. Just that he asked us how we were feeling huh. and thanked us for what we had He's on done. His radar. Yeah. And uh, said if we needed to talk to him, we could talk to him. And I don't know if anybody ever did, but hmm. I remember that distinctly. Yeah. That was probably the closest thing to a debriefing yeah. I've ever experienced at that time. So in those days, maybe one of the first efforts for what we might call early intervention into that sort of overwhelming stress was the critical incident stress debrief. So what were your first memories of um, CISD coming onto the scene? I think it was 84 or 85, somewhere in there. I was serving with the 
volunteer service in Lander. Somehow I became aware of this initiative and I expressed my interest in it. And I remember we went to the police academy in Douglas, Wyoming, and we did it, did a two day training. This big debriefing in this room with the 20 or so people who had volunteered to be part of the CISD team. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, I still remember it as being pretty incredible. People had never talked about anything. Huh. And there were some vet, veterans in the room, uh, a couple of law enforcement officers, yeah. and everybody had something yeah. that they needed to get off their chest. And then I, I started, at that time, it sounded like, boy, this is interesting. These people say it could be helpful. Yeah. It's the only thing we have. Yeah. And I started serving on that team. So you were doing the debriefs? Yeah. I was on that team for probably about eight or ten years. Yeah. And we would cr drive around Wyoming. They'd call us and say, can you go here? And this is Wyoming, so you're driving two, two and a half, three hours yeah. one way. And you'd go to these small towns and talk to these responders. So we, we would go do these critical incident stress debriefings. And it had the Mitchell format, the Mitchell model. We'd, we'd go debrief some really heinous things that people had experienced. And with good intentions to try to help them. And But after, I don't know doing this for a while, I started watching the reactions of people and wondering whether we were just re-engaging them in the stress mm. and were we actually helping them. Mm. Uh, and I started to become skeptical. And, you know, it could have been I was starting to wear out on it because you... Tremendous impact. Yeah, you're impacted by this yourself. Yeah. And uh, like storm chasing, right? You're going into all the worst stories and impact, right? It kind of set you up as a person doing that to keep driving to the parts of the state where something terrible had happened right. without I, a lot of support around how to take care of that. Something. And I remember we would drive back from these things and be talking in the vehicle about how we were all dealing with what we had just experienced in the debrief mm -hmm. and and then sometime in the early 90s I finally said I just don't think I don't this doesn't feel good so I stopped doing it mm -hmm. and that created a void for a while uh, in that I knew we needed something mm -hmm. but I didn't know what it would be that's when I actually started. I wrote that article, CSD question mark, helpful or harmful, that some people appreciated and some people got quite angry when they read it. You and presented that somewhere? I presented that at the uh, Women's Risk Managers Conference. Yeah. In what year? 94, 95. How, I, how did that go Wait over? No, that's too early. That's too early. Probably 97 or 98. Okay. I had, again, I had some people come up and say, I'm glad you are bringing this up. Mm -hmm. I've been in that, those debriefs. I'm mm -hmm. not convinced they're helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I had people come up who were very angry at me, mm -hmm. saying I was insensitive. Mm -hmm. I didn't appreciate it. I wasn't empathetic with mm -hmm. 
what they had experienced. Had you been following the literature or the studies on that? Is that what compelled you, or was that before they started really coming out? Uh, it was before they actually started really coming out. Mm-hmm. And then I started to look into it a little bit, and I was... Uh, I, I think I started to uncover the early papers, that, the early skeptical papers that were popping up in the yeah. literature, talking to a few other people about it. Mm-hmm. I'm also living in Lander, Wyoming, and I have minimal, I don't have access to the internet. <laughs> right, back in those days, <laughs> right? right? So yeah. you would, uh, You're at the library doing like, you'd find some, <laughs> Yeah, you'd have to write your library loan articles. Yeah, or, interlibrary yeah. loan. Yeah. Uh, took took forever, mimeograph papers <laughs> type right. things. So so between then and when did you start thinking, or when did you feel like you had found something that would work? Can you help us sort of bridge the gap? Because you have it was two that, not that I mean not that long ago two two thousand and twelve or fourteen. I started hearing about psychological first aid. I started hearing a little bit about stress injuries. I started reading about it. And then uh, in 2015, I did a review for the Red Cross mm-hmm. on their psychological first aid program. I was part of their scientific advisory council for first aid, mm-hmm. and they assigned me this review. So I really dug deep into the literature. Yes. And that's when I thought, boy, this looks like something that's – simple it's tangible it can be used by these lay people uh, professionals too of course but it looks like it's helpful and i haven't seen anything that says it's harmful right and i looked at all the organizations world health organization Mm -hmm. the military folks Mm -hmm. who had embraced it Mm -hmm. department of defense national child traumatic stress network right Right. yep okay Uh, red cross and their disaster response folks yeah so uh, that's when we had been talking about how to manage a stressful incident in our wilderness medicine curriculum, but only vaguely with, a, you know, you've got to find some support group. You've got to find your friends. You've got to find your family. You have to talk to them. Mm-hmm. This is real, mm-hmm. but we had no tangible tools for people. Yes. When did you, and I'm trying to remember because I know I worked with you on yeah. this, but when did we put it into our First put it into the handbook or curriculum at Knowles Wilderness Medicine. I think it was 2015. Okay. Because I did that review for the Red Cross in January of that year. So I think we rolled it out later that year. And at first it was the five elements of psychological first aid. Safety, calm, efficacy, connection, and hope. How'd I do? You got them all. (laughs) Okay, good, thanks. (laughs) Um, And so... What was uh, what was it like to be, in a sense, pioneering that into wilderness medicine education? No one else was doing it. It was a concept that you were still up against many folks who would still be going out into CISD models. What was the initial rollout like? I don't remember a lot of resistance to it. Mm-hmm. I think in large part that's your influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, you were, you were speaking so supportively of it and so passionately about it that it wasn't just something that I was serving up. Mm-hmm. I think that was important. Mm-hmm. I think people uh, saw it right away as something that useful that people were comfortable teaching it yes. and then thought it would be hoped it would be the tool that was had been missing for so long. Yes. Uh, 
and we coupled that as we learned more about just the, the pathophysiology of stress injuries. Yes. And we can weave that in. You've got a little bit of scientific substance. Yes. Yeah. Do you, so fast forward, I think, another few years. I think it was last summer, correct me, we were together talking about the nomenclature on stress injury because before that we had psychological first aid and it was sort of we're treating, we're trying to keep people from getting post-traumatic stress disorder. And then there was, I think, a moment um, when we – I knew that that happened to me a little bit earlier, realizing, boy, the way that we've been talking about this, we don't account for early changes of stress. It's just waiting till the boulder hits and PTSD. So you then brought that into the curriculum conversation. Yes. And we moved it out of, uh, we had it categorized with mental health. Yes. And we moved it into an actual injury category. Yes. And we did that because... We, we wanted to identify it as an injury, mm-hmm. which which takes some of the stigma out, off of it. As much as it's unfortunate, but there's still a stigma about yes. mental health. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for people to talk about. And in terms of the impact of stress and stress injuries, if you could separate that from remember, the cultural baggage around mental health right. and just say, you're hurt. Right. And this is physical, and this is real, and we know what the, how this injury is happening. Right, and really formulaic, right? That it was into the into the same workbook handbook we call the hymnal, but this idea that there's actually a diagnosis. This is how they form. This is how you react or have symptoms, and this is what you do about it. it. Really took some of the what I find is some of the mystique where people go, ah, it's psychological. You do it. You're a professional, and really that this belongs in the realms. These are physical injury types in the end that we're trying to mitigate on scene. And so, right. And when we rolled that out, that was kind of an aggressive thing to do. Yes, it was forward thinking and pioneering is oh. what I would say. <laughs> but maybe it felt right. aggressive to you. Yes. But I was I. I've uniformly heard staff say only, this is great. Yes. Students are more accepting of it. We teach it earlier in the course. It's not, oh, one of those things you do on day eight or nine, and you can do it early, and it becomes hopefully a more accepted, this is real, this is an injury. We can identify it as having things that you're going to see early on that are warning signs for you, the early changing vital sign concept that is embedded in a lot of our curriculum topics. Yeah. The late late changing signs, it fits in that curriculum mode. One of the things I think that we talked about and debated in some, and, and I think this continues to be a struggle for me sometimes, you know, I'll be asked the difference between mental health first aid and psychological first aid and making that distinction because we do have a section in our education and rightly so for responding to exacerbation of mental health in the wilderness anxiety, bipolar, depression, psychosis, uh, suicidality. And so I think it felt a little scary to take the leap just to cut ties from this being a mental health diagnosis, which I find in law enforcement and fire to be one of the biggest barriers, right? That a stress injury, certainly if you have an underlying mental health diagnosis, we know that your chances of getting stress injured are much higher, but it is not actually associated in that in that you can get injured without a mental health diagnosis. You can react to stress and get better without ever being diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis. But I think one of the things that was helpful and brave about doing this was that we, we realized that all mental health 
issues in the backcountry would decompensate under stress. So that we knew that in a sense that the things we did to mitigate stress or reduce people's stress load with psychological first aid would also be good for mm-hmm. mental health diagnoses mm-hmm. and yet would also be supportive of if it was a stress injury in isolation. And I think we toss that around a lot because it's a hard decision. Certainly you don't, we're not cutting ties with mental health because there's something wrong with having a mental health diagnosis. It just can be distinctly different than just being injured by an occupational exposure. And, and the, the, the mental health topic in, with the lay provider, the first aid level it, is still, a, it's a scary topic. Sure. Uh, uh, people are uncomfortable with it. They feel they don't understand it. It's not just, signs and symptoms I can pick up and the leg's broken and I can splint it. Yeah. Uh, it's just, there are more complex behaviors that may be hard to interpret as a first aid provider, but you can bridge the psychological first aid as a tool yes. to help decompress that mm-hmm. stress mm-hmm. while you make a decision as a first aid provider mm-hmm. and how we frame our curriculum of what do I understand about this? can I manage it? Can I help this person? Or do we have to seek professional help? And I have these tools, the same tool that I learned earlier in the curriculum. Right. I can use it again. When you think back to um, your early days and seeing so much trauma, grief, loss, exposure images, I'm just wondering now what you think the impact might be as a, for a rescuer now who can come on scene, let's say is in contact with a, terrified person or a grieving family member watching like how does psychological first aid help the rescuer i think before we were in a void we didn't quite know what to do there were some talented thoughtful compassionate people who seemed to have a knack for just knowing that if they went up and they could talk to somebody they could touch them by the tempo of their voice they can help mitigate their stress they would do things that now we'd say, oh, that's connection. We're connecting with family right. and friends and support group. Mm. You're giving this patient hope. Mm-hmm. You uh, aren't being a sort of a dropping into that medical paternal role. You're giving your patient some agency, your agency, efficacy. Your efficacy. Mm-hmm. There were people who did that. Mm-hmm. Now we know those things are, are useful. We can identify them. And we can tell people, you know, you most of you, hopefully all of you, you have these tools. They're part of your humanity. Right. And mm-hmm. just use them intentionally. Yes. And it's not rocket science. Right. And it can be and it can be very helpful. And I think that gives these caregivers in the classroom a sense of hope. Yes. Absolutely. That yeah, I think I can help this person. And efficacy, right? And efficacy at it. Right. And this is something I've observed a lot with you know, one of the exposure patterns I'm most aware of is particularly with family members and rescue. I mean, if you ask rescuers, patrollers, there's sentinel events, um, usually in rescue that they, that don't go away. It's when they had to be on scene and the mom showed up at the same time grieving or the family member. And I think that, um, having that, I think in fire and EMS, for instance, one of the exposure patterns is that you have to mop up the grief. You get there after it happens and you just have to, there's nothing else you can do. Well, that's the exact opposite of why you got into this. So it's a, it's almost a mission injury that you show up and it's over. And now you just, there's nothing and there's efficacy. So these high exposure, low efficacy situations are where I'm really curious about injuries forming. And I think that I remember 
um, after training with Yosemite, one of the rangers calling me and saying, um, and, and I think this is okay to say, I think the conversation started out with like, excitedly, they call and say, hey, guess what we did? Okay, well, the person died. That's how it started. Like, okay, well, it's going to get better from here, right? Because you're excited. He was like, yes. And we got on scene and we taught, but there was the girlfriend and she was, you know, great. We could see that she was impacted. So we said, now that you're safe, and we talked each other up, and we gave her a job, and we kept her warm, and we engaged her in the rescue. And all of a sudden, there was a sense of, again, like, guess what we did for this person? And I could see that really changing the game. For So I actually am starting to see psychological first aid is in some ways PPE or personal protective equipment for the rescuers because it gives them a sense of, I did the best thing that anybody could have done in a terrible moment for that family versus I stood by and watched while they just grieved. And so I think that's something that's so powerful, you know, in introducing this into wilderness medicine education that we're actually, it's protective for the people that we're teaching when they go out there, they now have something they can do that's a tangible toolkit. How many students a year do you think see this curriculum now? 10,000. Well, that's a tremendous amount of reach. Yeah. So getting sort of back, maybe we can sort of wrap up with this these questions. Um, you em- embarked on a career. No one ever told you that the most, what we know now in rescue, that the most likely injury type that you'll sustain across your profession is a stress injury. Um, what, what's, what, if you were doing education, which you are now in EMS, you know, we, we have EMT curriculum too. Like, what do you think is the central message for new rescuers setting out about exposure? And what, what would you wish that someone had just maybe pulled you aside and told you about where this lands, where it goes, where stress injuries over 40 or 50 years. I, I think messages I try to give students, young and, and young students often, when I'm talking about this, is that, I mean, they're in this classroom because they want to learn to, to help people, and that's noble, and I want them to be able to do that for a long time. But in order for them to do that, they have to understand that they will be impacted by stress. And... It depends a little bit on the audience. Uh, you know, sometimes you're in a room where you're sensing there's a lot of denial going on. Then you, then I just tell them, you're, if you do this for long enough, you're all going down. <laughs> and that's, that's, a message of hope? No. Yes. Well, maybe that, that sounds a little cavalier. I love but, it. But, uh, but I, and I said, not in the sense of you're going to be injured and ill for the rest of your life and unable to help people. But you are going to be impacted at some point, yes. and you have to acknowledge that, and you have to be strong enough to acknowledge that. Yes. And know when you are being injured, and you need to seek help, yeah. and, and that there's nothing wrong with that. Yes. And uh, you work in a culture mm. where you're expected to perform, and you're expected to be tough and resilient, and uh, that's all fine. But uh, you also have to be realistic. And I've, if I want you to be here in 20 years taking care of somebody, yeah. you have to be aware of this. And I'll tell them that I feel impacted by mm. what I've experienced and that I've known many a good medic who's left 
uh, we all know medics who've committed suicide. Yes. So. Uh, or, and maybe one of the ones I think that is now we're really starting to understand with the role of cortisol secretion and inflammatory illness that things like cancer and heart disease and diabetes and the things that actually candidly I see at the rescue um, retirement interface mm-hmm. being the most common. Um, we In Colorado, we've been sort of joking um, in, in traditional like law enforcement fire about this first 20 years campaign because it's so hard to teach this in the academy. It's hard to look out of a group of faces, you know, these young, fit, healthy, I'm taking over the world faces who um, you say you're going to be stress impacted. This is going to turn into cancer and diabetes. And and they're like, yeah, but not me. Right. And so the challenge I think is somehow for us, you know, as elders to think about, I, I think that would be sort of the campaign. Like you're actually right. You won't feel this physically for the first 20 years, but by the time you do, you can't mitigate it in the same way. It's like, you know, waiting until the cancer develops is not necessarily. So I think that's still a conversation to figure out how we can get. And I, and I think a lot of it is what you do. I think to, to be someone that people look up to and respect and who have the vulnerability to say, this impacted me. You don't have to suffer in the same way. Yeah. And, and it's, and a lot of it is embedding this in, in as an, as an organizational cultural component yes. that it's okay for you to say you are not fit for duty. Yeah. And uh, I think we have it like our local SAR group, I think has, especially with the senior leadership team, has a very good culture. We've all been around for a while. We need to get some young people in. But uh, we, are, we are very comfortable with telling each other or go, going up to somebody and saying, you've been here for 48 straight hours. Right. There's no need for you to go home. Are you using the stress continuum in that context? Uh, I introduced it to the group just uh, about six months ago. Hmm. We did a a debriefing of an incident that we, uh, a very stressful thing we responded to. And uh, I handed out the stress curriculum continuum Mm -hmm. to the team. And Mm -hmm. they all were able to look at it and Mm -hmm. it immediately resonated with them. So it's language we're starting to use, mm-hmm. and I hope to build that in the team as we go forward. Yeah, terrific. Well, you have done, you know, I think about did you, how many students did you say annually? I, well, the people, the students who are in the courses where we distinctly teach stress first aid, yes. stress injury and psychological first aid, roughly 10,000, maybe it's 12 a year. So I, I just, um, I guess I want to thank you for being one of the first to put that in the curriculum. I mean, that was 2015. We're into 40 and 50,000 people well, now. Well, you're a big part of that, Laura. So. Well, right back at you. <laughs> so thank you. And for um, also, I think, being honestly one of the elders who's willing to say, this really matters. We're going to focus on this. We're going to keep coming back to this because I know that people look at you and know that you're a wealth of organizational and, and rescue knowledge. And if you could, you also say, and this part really matters too. I think this is where we start to move the dial on the conversation. I um, I don't want you to ever retire, but I know you want to retire. <laughs> so, so that's good leadership too, right? Yeah. It's time for others to step in. Well, I hope that even from there, you'll keep speaking into this. So. Well, I'll have to keep teaching. I'm not going to live off Social Security. 
Okay, great. Well, thanks for being with us sure. today. This has been the Rescuer MBS podcast. Please subscribe to receive new episodes and interviews as they come out. Contact us at rescuermbs at gmail.com. Rescuer MBS, know your limits, improve your performance.